Welcome everyone to another exciting episode of the Pandemonium podcast, sponsored by the Rothman Foundation for Opioid Research and Education. Joining me today in the podcast is the former acting commissioner of the FDA and a personal friend, Dr. Stephen Ostroff. Dr. Ostroff graduated medical school at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in 1981. He completed residencies in internal medicine at the University of Colorado Health Science Center and in preventative medicine at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Ostroff served as the acting FDA commissioner on two occasions, one from April 2015 to late February 2016, and again from January to May of 2017. While at FDA, he worked in areas such as food safety and nutrition, food labeling, food and color additives, cosmetics, dietary supplements, animal drugs, and animal feed. I find this conversation to be particularly interesting. Uh, First of all, because we have an insider understanding of how the FDA works, we talk a bit about the early 1990s when the opioid crisis started coming to the public light and the role of the FDA in approving pain medications and how the FDA is now taking pathways to combat the opioid epidemic. And we take lessons that Dr. Ostaff has learned from his time at FDA and other activities in public health to understand how we can better approach handling this epidemic. As always, if you're liking the podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review. Uh, This helps tremendously. If you are feeling generous, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Rothman Foundation at rothmanopioid.com. This will help fund opioid-related projects such as this. And without further ado, Dr. Stephen Ostroff. So welcome everyone to another episode of the Pandemonium Podcast. Today we are incredibly excited and honored to have on the podcast a true leader in the public health domain, someone who has given most of his life uh, working to help others and better medicine, uh, Dr. Stephen Ostroff. Dr. Ostroff has been with the FDA on two occasions and has had multiple leadership consulting positions in the CDC, FDA, and the PA Bureau of Epidemiology. So welcome, Dr. Ostroff. It's good to be with you. Absolutely. So let's take it back to the beginning. You've had this incredible career so far. Um, God willing, it will continue for a long time. But I'm curious, you went to medical school here in Philadelphia at UPenn, right across the river for where I'm sitting. And I'm wondering, did you always have this idea of trying to be a leader in public health and take that step in medicine? Or was it something that came to you um, maybe during medical school or right after? Not at all, actually. Um, So uh, when I finished, well, I should step back a little bit. When I was an undergraduate at Penn and then when I was in medical school, I was one of these people that whatever rotation I was doing got me really, really excited. And then I would say to myself, this is what I wanted to do. I I remember being really enthusiastic at one point about Hemonc as one example. Um, I did a project when I was an undergraduate before I got into medical school uh, in neurology. And, and there was an extended time period where I really, really wanted to be a neurologist. Um, so, I, so, so but, but then eventually I settled on, uh, you know, when I wasn't sure and I had a lot of questions, I kind of settled on internal medicine. And I really was very interested in doing a internal medicine primary care tract. And, um, uh, and, and I always envisioned that I would just be a doc. I would, you know, see patients. Uh, I would enjoy uh, taking care of people, um, and uh, I thought that that would be something very fulfilling to do. But uh, for me, um, even back then, um, medical school wasn't cheap, 
and um, I didn't come from a wealthy background. And so initially when I got into medical school, I contemplated uh, doing a scholarship with the military. In fact, I got accepted by the Air Force. And uh, when I started thinking about it, I <clears throat> decided that that probably wasn't the right thing to do. But after a couple of years in medical school, I actually got a scholarship from the Public Health Service. And the way that those scholarships work is that for every year you got the scholarship, you, um, you, you paid them back a year of service. And um, when it came time for me to do my two years of service after I completed my residency out in Colorado at the University of Colorado, you then had to figure out where you're gonna serve your time. And they had this process where it's almost like matching. Uh, with, with residencies. And um, when the letter came in the mail, they had matched me to one of these little islands in the Western Pacific that were affiliated with uh, the US, some of these US affiliated Pacific territories. And uh, that's where I was assigned to. I wasn't sure that I wanted to do it at first, but I thought it would be a really, really intriguing and in interesting challenge. And it was, it was a very interesting place to spend a couple of years, incredibly remote, incredibly interesting when it came to infectious diseases. And it was especially interesting as it is today uh, when it came to disease outbreaks. And um, when you have a little remote place like that, anytime something new gets introduced, it will spread like, wire, like fire through the population. And, and in fact, if you look at the COVID pandemic, um, some of the only places in the world that have not seen COVID are little tiny Pacific islands because they have shut themselves off to the world. And it's been very successful. So I saw some very interesting things that intrigued me and I decided I wanted to learn how to better investigate those things. And so I ended up after I completed that time in the Western Pacific and uh, going to the CDC for their training program. And it sort of opened my eyes to what I thought would be a wonderful career. And that's how it started. So from my perspective, I, I entirely owe my career trajectory to spending two years on that little island. I don't know. I can imagine you in the military right now. I can't, I can't imagine how that would have changed your life. You would have been yeah, so it buff. It would have looked so cool. It would have been very different. So, so you were spending this time at around the late 80s, early 90s. Is that about right when you were finishing off residency and heading yeah. toward the CD? So what types of issues were you seeing in terms of you were talking about um, epi uh, epidemics or pandemics spreading like wildfire? What types of issues were you seeing at the time? Well, on that little island, um, it was, you know, virtually anything that came along. We had a, a dengue outbreak. Uh, we had a very interesting outbreak of pneumonia in younger individuals that I never figured out what the cause because we had incredibly limited diagnostic capacity. Um, and, you know, any antibiotic that you gave them seemed to make them better within 24 hours. And we never quite figured that out. We actually had a cluster of infections where uh, people seem to develop renal insufficiency, um, including young individuals. And, 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 and we thought that it was something like uh, 
post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis was, was happening in these folks. There are all kinds of interesting things like that that would happen. We had a we had a raging pink eye epidemic where somebody brought the wrong virus onto the island and and everybody got it. It it just it just totally fascinated me. And um one of the things I wanted to talk to you about specifically today was your role in helping combat the opioid epidemic that was raging this country as when you're starting your, your professional career in the, in the 90s as well. When was the first time you were exposed to the problem that we're facing even today in, in terms of large numbers of opioid prescribing, lots of people starting to turn to heroin and other non-prescription opioids and the the incredible rise in opioid overdose deaths. And when, when did you first start being exposed to that? Yeah, so I will say that um, for me, it came much later. And the only reason for that was that my time that I was actually involved in treating patients was fairly limited uh, to the 1980s. Now, you know, Denver at that time was not necessarily a hotbed of uh, opioid problems. We certainly saw individuals that had, um, uh, you know, drug-seeking behavior. Uh, we one of the places that uh, we rotated through in the residency program was Denver General, which was Denver's equivalent at the time of Bellevue, and so you did see it all. I, I don't specifically remember opioids being, you know, a major. Uh, problem that came in, for instance, to the emergency department, or that I was taking care of pa uh, patients in the hospital. It was it was much more alcohol related at that time, and uh, it simply wasn't a problem <clears throat> when I worked on that little island. Um, they didn't have a big supply of, of of opioid drugs, and so that wasn't the problem. Uh, there were lots of other problems uh, like. Uh, you know, smoking-related diseases and alcohol-related diseases and diseases of, of uh, being overweight and, and having poor diets, but, but, but opioids wasn't one of them. And <clears throat> when I worked at, at CDC for uh, all the time that I worked there, I worked in the infectious disease issue area, so, so, so opioids wasn't really a focus of mine. Um, it, it clearly, though, was becoming a larger focus of the CDC even when I was there, uh, because it was a growing problem in, in into the early, you know, the late '90s and into the early 2000s. Um, it, uh, it it was also not something that I worked at at the state level, and so for me, it really became a significant issue when I got to FDA. And when you got to FDA, at least for the first the first time you served as the director in 2015, is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, a number had a number of things that already happened. Um, they were starting to increase label transparency. We'll talk about in a second. Um, already at that time, the FDA on their website said they were sending warning letters to Purdue, um, as well as you know approving other opioid types of pain management like methadone and stuff like that. So when you first, as you say, you were exposed to this the first time in the FDA, uh, what was your first thought on the matter? And what was your kind of uh, main focus or your general priorities when you talk about addressing this epidemic? Um, so when I got to FDA, which was in 2013, 
Um, I initially went there to work on the food side of the Food and Drug Administration, but within a couple of months, uh, moved into the position of the agency's chief scientist, where you deal with a, you know, a lot of issues that you know, go across the agency. And, and that's when I started becoming uh, much more involved with what the agency was doing in the opioid space. Um, I was in that position for about seven or eight months before I moved into the role of the acting commissioner. As you mentioned, um, that happened uh, in early 2015. And by that point, um, you know, the, the opioid crisis was a major problem in the United States. As you pointed out, it had been a growing problem for a number of years. And um, I, I think, you know, in the early teens was when it really sort of broke out as being a, an obvious uh, epidemic that was completely out of control in terms of what was happening with opioids around the United States. And it's, uh, it was the period when, you know, I think FDA uh, started recognizing that there were many things that uh, they could do um, to uh, be in more of a position of uh, helping the problem rather than uh, uh, contributing to it, whether it was actually contributing to it or whether it was being perceived as contributing to it, which I think by that point they certainly uh, were viewed as, as, as significantly contributing to the problem. And so a lot of what we were doing at that time was uh, trying to uh, see uh, whether or not and, and in what ways uh, we could uh, contribute to helping to bring this problem under control. So a, a lot of my focus is, you know, how could we look at things from a somewhat different perspective than the FDA traditionally had looked at this? And, uh, you know, what could we do in terms of some out of the box thinking um, that we could, uh, you know, contribute to trying to resolve this problem? Yeah, and you're coming from a unique perspective because you spent a lot of time at, you were saying the, the food and veterinary medicine side of things, as well as spending time, as you said, in the Pacific Islands dealing with epidemics. Uh, can you talk a bit about what experience you brought into the FDA's approach, um, specifically uh, in terms of like food labeling and how that relates to like drug labeling, for instance, with yeah. OxyContin and stuff like that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll sort of try to take it from a little bit different perspective. Um, FDA is a regulatory agency. It, it's a very large regulatory agency. It has a very wide scale of responsibilities. And so in general, um, when we go out there and talk about the agency, we would say that, you know, for about every 20 or 25 cents, uh, or, or for every consumer, consumer dollar that you spend, uh, FDA regulates about 20 or 25 cents of it. So it really sort of covers a, a wide scale. Um, and uh, one of the, certainly the, 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 um, the, the person who was the commissioner at the time that I started there, Peggy Hamburg, who had a fairly extensive public health background uh, and not necessarily a regulatory background, um, you know, felt a need to try to see if she could boost the, um, the, the, the people at FDA 
who uh, you know could take a larger public health point of view in terms of trying to prioritize what the agency was doing and deprioritize things that really didn't have a lot of public health bang for the buck, if you want to use a term like that. And so she was, she was very interested in bringing people into the agency with a broader public health background like she had. And, um, and so that's why I came there. I thought that was a very you know, interesting notion. Um, uh, and and, and you know, a lot of the people who worked at FDA uh, were people who worked on you know, developing regulations. And um, you know, seeing the ag agency primarily through a, a regulatory lens, I myself, when especially when I was the you know the act in the acting commissioner role, if anybody was to ask me what FDA does, um, I would say FDA was a public health agency that discharged their public health responsibility through regulation. That's not the, the same as saying you're a regulatory agency that oh by the way does public health stuff. I think that there's a big difference between the two. And, and so, um, you know, I think for a significant part of the time um, where, um, you know, while the, the opioid uh, problem was growing and turning into a major epidemic, um, FDA still very much, you know, tried to stay in their swim lane. And their swim lane, is essentially evaluating and approving products. And so, you know, FDA didn't really think that, you know, if, if somebody, um, you know, was legitimately developing a product and um, submitted a, an application to FDA uh, for a medical product, whether it was a drug or whether it was a medical device or <clears throat> whatever it happened to be, they saw their role as evaluating the material that was submitted to them and determining whether or not the product should be approved. And they had a very specific framework for making a determination that something should be approved. Uh, they didn't view themselves as a gatekeeper in terms of what was submitted to them. Uh, it, and, and from their perspective, all they were doing essentially was determining in you, the individual, um, was the uh, benefit that you could get from a particular medical product, uh, did it exceed uh, the risk for you as the individual? And, yeah. and I mean that for you as the individual. And, uh, you know, they looked at the material that was submitted in the application, they looked at the labeling, they looked at the indications that the product was supposed to be used for, and if, <clears throat> if it fulfilled their criteria, they approved it. So it wasn't an agency that, by and large, looked at the wider consequences beyond the individual in terms of what may be the consequences of this particular product being out there and available. And uh, in addition to that, that that particular product may be used in ways that weren't consistent with the way that it was labeled and may have all of these downside public health consequences. Um, that wasn't a traditional way that FDA would look at things. But, you know, I, I, you know one of the I, things that I think, the things that I hopefully was able to contribute is that you can't just look at this from the individual 
uh, perspective in terms of the specific user of a product that was labeled to be used for individuals that were suffering from very severe uh, and intractable pain where you know, other options hadn't been successful. I mean, that could be the way that it was labeled. That's not the way it was being used. And there were all of these negative repercussions in terms of these types of products being out there. So, you know, you ought to you ought to look at these from the perspective of what is the larger public health context in which uh, there are problems associated with these products. As you're taking this new approach towards the FDA, which is a very large organization, I'm sure, uh, did you receive any pushback from either inside the FDA or outside the FDA? about the directions in which you want to? Well, certainly from within, um, you know, this was also sort of the time period where <clears throat> CDC was trying to get their arms around the opioid problem. And CDC was in the process of developing uh, guidelines for opioid prescribing. And um, uh, many people in, in, in FDA that worked on opioid issues uh, had great concerns with those guidelines. Um, they felt that they were, you know, swinging too far in the other direction. Uh, you know, there were many people at FDA that, you know, considered there to be a very important role for opioids and uh, that it wasn't so much of a problem what the agency per se was doing in terms of, uh, of, of, uh, of approving them. It was more of a problem you know, in terms of how they were being used once the agency approved them. So I, I, I do think that there were many people at FDA who didn't necessarily think that FDA was the one that was contributing to the problem to the degree that it became clear, I think, not only within the agency at higher levels, but also, I think, at, outside in the wider public um, that, that simply saw the FDA as, as pouring you know, uh, oil on the fire. Yeah. And one of the things that you did amongst the many things that you did there is you authored a paper that pretty much outlined the response that the FDA was going to take, at least some of the programs that the FDA was going to sponsor. Uh, it was entitled a proactive response to prescription opioid abuse, and it outlined a lot of things. Um, and we'll link to it in the show notes so everyone can see those, uh, things that we talk or that we talk about, but uh, could you touch on specifically what the FDA learned in terms of applying that knowledge of public health uh, benefit uh, towards the approval of new drugs, specifically for pain control? Now that we have this out in the open, we still have to you know, approve better options. And there were many better options that were trying to be or that were applying for approval from the FDA. So how does the FDA now approach this new domain of pain management? Yeah, so, you know, there were a number of ways that I think an agency like the FDA was going to be able to contribute. That article lays out some of them uh, and, and it talks very clearly about balancing individual versus societal risks and benefits. And I, and, you know, we just talked about that, but, you know, there were a number of other ways that we thought that we could make a significant difference in trying to limit some of the damage, which was by that point very rampant. So one of them that I think uh, we were especially interested in is the development of abuse deterrent formulations as one example, <clears throat> and, and trying to do anything that we could to get non-abuse deterrent formulations off of the market 
and to the degree possible, try to try to replace them with abuse deterrent formulations. But um, you know, it sounded good, uh, and I have to say that I think it's totally appropriate to do that. But if you think about what abuse deterrent formulations do, they make it more difficult to abuse the drug if it isn't being used in the route of administration that it's supposed to be used. And so if it's an oral formulation, then you can't do something to make it less usable in its oral formulation. It was largely coming up with versions of these products that couldn't be crushed, or if they were crushed, that, you know, the a reaction formed so that you didn't get the opioid, you know, properties that they were supposed to have, or you couldn't be able to intravenously inject them. Although I think at that point, we became much more aware of the problem in Indiana, uh, where despite the fact that this supposedly had abuse deterrent properties that would make it more difficult to inject, they could still figure out how to inject it. And unfortunately they were and caused an HIV problem. And so, you know, I think even that had limited impact in terms of being able to make a difference. It probably had some marginal benefit, but, you know, we were thinking about, you know, how you could more, uh, do more to require uh, clinicians to have the proper training and education um, uh, that they needed before they would be permitted to prescribe uh, any of these opioids, and in particular, the ones that were more likely to be abused. That was another area that we spent a lot of time thinking. FDA had put in place something called a REMS. REMS is something that stands for Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, uh, where they required the, <clears throat> the various um, uh, manufacturers and distributors of opioids to develop educational courses, but they weren't mandated. And um, we yeah. needed to, to work with, uh, uh, you know, DEA where you had to register and try to make this a requirement rather than something so optional. These are the pharmaceutical companies themselves who manufacture the drug are then offering these types of educational programs or is it done through the FDA? Uh, no, these were, these were being done by the manufacturers as a requirement of, of them maintaining their uh, product uh, being able to be on the market. Um, and they had to be reviewed by uh, outside independent um, uh, authorities uh, or by the FDA for content. Um, but yeah, this was a requirement that uh, was put on them. Again, I don't know quite, you know, how impactful that was, but that was another one. The, the other was, you know, what could we do to assist in the development of, and, and, and utilization of medication-assisted treatment. Right. Um, we thought that was a very important potential contribution. And the other is that how could we make Narcan more widely available? Um, and we had a lot of discussions about trying to push it to become over-the-counter uh, so that you didn't need a prescription for it. That was one of the things that I know we also discussed. These were the types of things that we were thinking, you know, what is it that the agency could contribute? In addition to that, uh, there was a fair amount of discussion, including with our partners at, at, uh, at NIH in NIDA, um, in terms of how could we help facilitate the development of non-addictive pain medications. And FDA has ways that you could grease the skids or help facilitate getting 
products like that through clinical trials and through the regulatory process so that they would become available. So what we tried to do is set out an agenda that we, we viewed as being an affirmative agenda um, that would uh, you know, help in some ways to be able to address the problem, recognizing that we couldn't be this sole solution. Yeah, and I think you talk about this pretty well in your paper as well, and I think you touched upon it now, is that you're kind of walking a thin line between the people who really do need treatment for especially chronic pain, especially pediatric chronic pain who are going to be on opioids for a long time, and people who abuse or misuse. So it's it's a very hard line to draw, especially from a regulatory perspective at the FDA. Um, but I'm curious, uh, you talk a little bit about the educational programs that were provided for physicians. Were there any educational initiatives for the public from the FDA's perspective? Or is that more of a state level or even a county level thing? Well, I, you know, the educational campaigns, I mean, FDA um, uh, did participate in uh, some uh, activities that would be directly targeted for the public. Um, that's generally not sort of what FDA gets involved in. I know, you know, one of the, 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 the areas that they in particular were engaged in uh, is this idea of having, you know, lock boxes for opioids um, to, uh, you know, have opioid, opioid return days and, and those sorts of things. Uh, you know, FDA regulates products. They don't, you know, so much get involved in, you know, dealing with uh, the people per se. And, and, and I know that sounds a little bit funny, but, you know, CDC is generally viewed as the, as the agency that, that, that works on, you know, public health campaigns of that nature. FDA certainly was willing to help them develop them. Uh, and, but, but, but as far as doing that directly, it generally isn't something you hear very much from, from FDA. Yeah. So they would work, they would work with partners to try to do those types of things. And you, um, let me get this. I just want to make sure I have this correct. So you ended up leaving the FDA in February, early 2016, and then coming back in in January of 2017. No, that's not quite true. Okay. So um, I was the acting commissioner, uh, always recognizing that at some point there would be a new commissioner. And so when there was uh, finally a, a new commissioner that got confirmed by the Senate, it's actually the guy who was the first author of the article that we co-authored together because he was the deputy commissioner while I was the acting commissioner. Um, so then I moved into back to the food side. So I became the deputy commissioner on the food side of the FDA. And I did that uh, from 2016 into early 2017 when there was a change of administration. And in general, as is the case now, when there's a change of administration, whoever's the FDA commissioner leaves. Mm -hmm. And so he left, I stepped back into the acting commissioner role and I did that for a second time until um, a new commissioner was confirmed by the Senate that was Scott Gottlieb. And uh, I then moved back to the deputy commissioner role. And I, and I stayed at, and I stayed at FDA until uh, the beginning of 2019. So, you know, I was there for about a period of six years and I never stayed in the same position for more than seven or eight months during my entire time there. I would move, move around all the time. Uh, I thought, a renaissance I, man. yeah, I thought that that kept me kind of fresh. 
did you have a renewed perspective and any different uh, position you you had there in terms of as you were spending more and more time at the FDA, did you feel like one, uh, I guess, one pathway towards treating the opioid epidemic was more important than the other? Or was it pretty much just as the issues progressed, you kind of guided the FDA? I think, you had? I, well, I will say, you know, it, it became more and more apparent to me when it wasn't necessarily the case when I got there, you know, I, uh, I, I had worked on, on sort of the CDC-like end of the spectrum, uh, both when I worked at CDC, but also when I was working at the state level. Um, and, uh, you know, came into FDA without very much of an understanding of the way the agency worked. And when that's the case, and you learn pretty quickly the way the agency function, functions and what the agency does and, and how the agency approaches things, you kind of buy into it. And, and, and as I said, there, there were, were folks at FDA, even at that time, who um, uh, felt that you know, they needed to stay in their swim lane and that addressing the consequences of some of the things that the agency was doing uh, was, you know, somebody else's, um, you know, issue. But I, I think, you know, I certainly, especially when I got into the commissioner's role, uh, you know, came fairly quickly to the conclusion that we were a significant part of the problem. Um, and that this wasn't just somebody else's problem to solve. And that we really did have to think differently uh, about this problem and how we were contributing to it. Um, I, you know, I talked to so many people in that role outside of the agency, you can't help but do it. And, um, and, and it was always a revelation to me in terms of how, what the agency was doing and how the agency was contributing to the problem, uh, how it was viewed by others. And, and, and there wasn't, it, it was difficult to find anybody who thought that we were doing this right. And so when you, when you hear that so consistently across the political yeah. spectrum, I have to say um, this, this wasn't really a very partisan issue in Congress. Uh, it, it, it ran the gamut from uh, academia to certain segments of industry, uh, certainly to the consumer groups and the public that we were in the wrong here and you can't just say everybody else is wrong and we're right. So um, we really did need to sort of uh, own up to the fact that we were contributing to this problem and start thinking about doing things differently. Um, you know, but, but you have to understand the FDA simply can't throw out the regulatory scheme. It, it, is, it, is, it is embedded in law. It is embedded in regulations and you can't just say, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to toss that all aside and completely do something differently unless we were willing to go out there and, um, and ditch those regulations and ask Congress to pass a different set of laws. Um, I, I will say that there were uh, people outside who felt very, 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 um, uh, you know, personally and, and, and that felt very strongly that FDA did need to do things con totally differently and they needed to start taking these off the market. Um, and uh, there were others that said, for everyone you approve, you have to withdraw one. Uh, I mean, that's what we were hearing. 
um, that, that, that this is how serious this problem was. And quite frankly, in some circumstances, I think we would have welcomed some input from Congress and others that would direct the agency to do something different. Um, you know, there are some times that, you know, you interpret and the lawyers interpret the way that the law is written and what the, the agency is required to do. Like I said, it's not like if, if a legitimate um, uh, researcher or a legitimate manufacturer comes to the agency and says they want this uh, to be evaluated and determine whether or not it should be approved. It's not like you can say to them, no, we're not going to look at it. We can't, right. it, it, we weren't legally allowed to do that. Uh, it, it's not possible that you can't accept an application unless it's a very poorly written application. Um, so, uh, you know, there were only, there's only so much that you could conceivably do. That's why we tried to think, you know, how can we positively, um, uh, you know, approach this and how can we make a positive contribution that I think would be understandable and that we really did think would make a difference. Was there any uh, was there any room for improvement in terms of post approval research in terms of how opioids are affecting the community? Yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting question. And so the agency does have ways that they could require, and in fact, we did start requiring that uh, any products that we approved had to do certain uh, studies. Uh, after the product was approved by the agency to assure that it was being used in ways that was consistent with the label and it wasn't being used outside of those particular labeling indications. Um, and, you know, for the most part, these were, you know, we, there were special concerns about the more, uh, you know, powerful uh, opioids that were coming through at that point. Um, some of them did have abuse deterrent formulations, uh, but they were still incredibly high dose and there was a lot of angst about whether or not those should be marketed. And so we wanted to make sure that they were only being used. And I mean only being used in ways that were consistent with their labels, which is that they were to be considered the opioid of last resort for people that you know had intractable pain due to you know, uh, advanced cancer or whatever it happened to be and that they were not going to be used uh, outside of those circumstances. And uh, we required them to submit monthly statistics to us about how those products were being used. That's, that's one example. The other is that the agency also has the power uh, if it's perceived that the sponsor of the product being, you know, the manufacturer, the ones that submitted the application and had it approved, if they were marketing their products in ways that were inconsistent with their labeling, uh, they're not allowed to do that. The FDA could come after them and take actions in those circumstances. And we did indeed think about trying to be much more aggressive in, in assuring that that wasn't happening. I have well, to admit, all, I, I, think, I think that in some instances it was too far after the fact. And um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, once the cat's out of the bag, or, you know, some may say once the bell has been rung, it's very hard to unring it. Yeah, and, and it's even, it's a three-pronged problem. When the, the CDC talks about uh, three waves, the third wave beginning in 2013, where you have a move from prescription opioids to less uh, expensive options on the street, like heroin and fentanyl, that cause more of an overdose problem that we're seeing today. Um, but 
it's really important to note that your efforts have really made a significant uh, positive effect in terms of this problem. Uh, I think COVID is definitely going to have a negative effect in terms of the future uh, in the immediate terms. But I think right before COVID, uh, 2017, 2018, we start seeing rates of overdose to, uh, opioid overdose declining. And uh, it doesn't seem like it's so related to 2015, but I think there's an argument to be made that you know overdoses tend to come after prescriptions tend to go down. So yeah, well, I will say I, I'm I'm I, I you know I haven't I I won't say this is you know especially with COVID um, I, I I haven't been following as closely, but I'm not sure that you could necessarily I, th I I'd like to think that FDA's actions. Uh, contributed to some of the favorable trends that were seen, but I'm not quite sure that they were necessarily the major contributors. I do think that uh, a lot of the attention that uh, was being given at the time to the extent of the problem. Um, and in addition to that, I think that CDC actually did quite a good job putting together their guidelines for appropriate prescribing and how to prescribe them and how not to prescribe them. Uh, I think that this was picked up not only by uh, lots, lots of public health agencies, but also by lots of professional societies. And uh, you did see, uh, I think, very significant changes in prescribing patterns for opioids that I would attribute much more to that than I would some of the things that FDA was doing. I do think FDA very much helped facilitate availability of Narcan as one example. And um, I do think that that made such a very significant difference. I would love to continue to be able to see better access to medicated medication assisted therapy, um, you know, especially, you know, buprenorphine and things like that. I think that would also make a very significant difference. I think it's unfortunate that there are still limits to how many patients can be uh, uh, seen by uh, individual clinicians. There's a lot more that we can continue to do to help with this. I think that there's abundant evidence that, that MAT works and we need to use those types of things more. And I think that FDA, you know, can help, you know, with that in terms of, of the evidence that, you know, you don't need those types of restrictions. And if you don't mind me asking, as the Renaissance man of all the positions at the FDA, do you have a specific accomplishment that you're most proud of? Boy, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> you know, it gets it, it, it not so much in the opioid space, but um, uh, I, I, I will say um, that uh, you know some of the things that we did on the food side, which have nothing to do with opioids. I think that we were able to do a, a lot of things to 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 be able to put in place the biggest overhaul of the way that we regulate um, you know the food supply in the country. I, I would look at that as a, as, as a really very significant uh, achievement. Um, I, I, I will say, you know, the, one of the things that I learned, especially in the acting commissioner's role, it's a very challenging job. There is no question about it. And um, I, I kind of learned that when you make a decision at the FDA, if, if everybody ends up pretty unhappy about the decision, uh, you probably made the right decision. Um, you know, if there's one sector that feels really elated by what was done and the other side, uh, you know, is totally unhappy about it, then uh, you probably didn't come out in the right place. 
Um, it's, 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 it's tough to make decisions that will make everybody happy. It's very rare that that happens. Um, but you just have to sort of learn that, um, you know, you need to try to figure out, you know, when the, when this, when the science is pretty solid, it's easy to make a decision, but right. you're very often having to work in, uh, in, in areas where there's uncertainty about what the right decision happens to be. And at the end of the day, you have to make a decision. Um, but when you do make a decision, you have to be willing to re-examine it if, if it turns out it wasn't the right decision. And as we come to a close, I, I wanted to touch on one last thing. Uh, and that's, you know, it's a very politicized topic in terms of COVID. Oh, the opioid epidemic is not politicized in and of itself, as we talked about before, it seems like. But in terms of COVID, do you think that there's a certain thing that you've taken from your time in the FDA and your years of involvement in public health that we should really focus on in terms of addressing this opioid epidemic pre, during, and post-COVID? Yeah, so I, I, my, you know, one of the things that I think that COVID has illustrated is that there are ways that FDA can be a facilitator. And I mean, if you just look at <clears throat> the actions that the agency took to be able to get uh, some of these vaccines onto the market in record time, um, you know, that required them to really, really, really think outside the box in order to be able to achieve something like that. And so I do think that, that there are ways that the FDA can be a, a facilitator. And I continue to think that there are ways that the FDA can be a facilitator with the opioid problem. This is not a problem that's gone away. Um, <clears throat> I think that COVID has really exacerbated the opioid problem. And, um, and, and the FDA just has to continue to, you know, every day, uh, folks that work on opioids have to come in and say, how can we help address this problem? There are still lots that I think that the agency can do and hopefully will do uh, to address this. Um, uh, Public you know, health was definitely put to the test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, yeah. but, but I, I still think that there's uh, way too much inappropriate use of opioids. Uh, I will say that um, they are not um, they are not the first thing that anybody should uh, turn to. Um, I had a um, a tooth removed um, a year or so ago, and the first thing that they did was hand me the prescription. Uh, I didn't need it. Uh, I didn't take it, and. Um, I just think that there are still too many circumstances in which it's too easy to prescribe these. Well, Dr. Ostroff, a very humble yet experienced man. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on today. I appreciate all the work you've done. Uh, and I, I do think that you did a, a tremendous amount of good for this country, uh, both in your leadership roles and consulting and just your, your outreach. So thank you for that. The last time I actually saw you, was uh, at my wedding doing the Macarena together. Yeah. So <laughs> it's always good to see you uh, in and, good and, health. And, 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 uh, and that's been too long, even though it wasn't that long ago. So <laughs> we will get to see each other again. So absolutely. And, th and thank you so much again for coming on. I really appreciate it. And, and, and what you're doing is terrific. So keep it up. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. 
If I could just have one minute of your time, I'd like to let you know of the sponsor of the podcast, the Rothman Foundation for Opioid Research and Education. This foundation is a 501c3 non-for-profit organization. It's a wonderful foundation dedicated to providing resources and insight into the opioid epidemic, as well as who it affects and how we're addressing the issue. The objectives of the organization are threefold. The first is to raise awareness in the lay and medical communities of the risks and benefits of safe opioid use. The second is to educate patients, physicians, and policymakers on safe opioid use after injuries and surgeries. And the third is to support research and educational efforts aimed at improving and innovating pain management strategies that can result in decreased opioid use and advance alternatives to opioids. If this sounds like something you would be interested in supporting, please visit rothmanopioid.org and see the tab to donate. Thank you so much, and we appreciate your support.